Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, I'm very excited to bring to you um, Dan Ariely. Um, Dan is the um, is an author. He's uh, written numerous books. The first of one, uh, the first one that I read was Predictably Irrational. Um, you'll hear us talk a little bit back and forth about that today. Um, he is also uh, leads the um, Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University and is the founder of Duke Startup Labs. So really fun interview today. Um, I've known Dan for, or I've read Dan for a long time. So really exciting opportunity for me to sit down um, and have a conversation with somebody that I admire, um, whose work is, I think, um, kind of leading edge of how we make decisions and how poorly we actually make decisions. So certainly hope that you enjoyed today's podcast with Dan. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really excited about the next uh, 50, 60 minutes. So, um, so thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So um, you, you didn't want the, the cheated startup. Um, I'm going to give you the first question. So we're going to jump right into it and see how we go along here. <laughs> yes. Um, so you're, um, you're obviously involved with and kind of co-founder started the Center for Advanced Hindsight and the startup lab up in Duke and the Durham area. So can you talk to us about what that is? Yeah. So, uh, so my name is Dan Rielli. I'm a behavioral economist. It means that I, I do all kinds of research on uh, what get people to misbehave basically. And then I try to figure out what we can do to, to fix it. Now our research center at Duke is called the center for advanced hindsight and the reason, by the way, we, we got this name was that, you know, sometimes when we have some findings, people say, oh, yes, I knew that all along. <laughs> and uh, it's it's kind of a protection against, against that. But uh, we mostly do research on financial decision-making in health. So we're trying to understand uh, uh, why people make the decision that they make in financial decision in health. And then we try to figure out what we can do to improve things. And a few years ago, we we um, started inviting startups to join us, and we call it the Startup Lab. And it's kind of an incubator, uh, but it's an academic incubator. And as an academic incubator, we think that uh, you can't achieve almost anything in three months. It needs to be longer. So so we invite the companies to come for a year. Uh, almost all of them want to come for two years. Yeah, I mean, I they, they come for you and then they stay for another year. Uh, but but our, our approach is to get them to come here and we teach them about behavioral economics and behavior change. And then we help them take their assumptions about what their product is doing and say, are you really sure about these assumptions? And if you're not, let's let's figure out. And it's amazing how often uh, you realize that you're wrong uh, when you do experiments and how often startups realize that they are that they're wrong and there's a better way to to do things so so we help them on the social science perspective and we help them on the experimental aspect and we help them be more rigorous about testing and and you know it's kind of amazing like nobody in biology will will dare to do a startup in biology without the biologist on on staff 
um, at least one. Uh, but people have no problem doing a startup on behavioral change without <laughs> anybody having any experience with this uh, research. Yeah. Right? So I was, oh, yes, yes, I've, I started sleeping better. I understand sleep. Let me, let me, let me do that or so on. So, so it's incredibly helpful um, to do that. Uh, but, but we don't just um, help the startup labs. We, we try to help the community of startups more generally. And, and, and I'll, t I'll tell you why, why I believe so much in startups. So, so one of the principles of, of behavioral economics is that the environment matters, right? If I uh, imagine I came to your house every morning with a fresh tray of uh, donuts and croissants, just 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 as you wake up and you know the smell was permeating the house uh, how healthy would you be at the end of the year and i did this every day probably not as healthy <laughs> as i want to be <laughs> that's right um and this is because it's not about you it's about what the environment elicits in you and there's a good chance that the environment elicits uh, all kinds of bad things now what happened with technology and with phones and specifically is that all of a sudden the technology is walking in the world with us. So think about the area of financial decision-making, something you know a lot about. Uh, you teach people how to do something that is financially reasonable, mm -hmm. and then you release them to the world. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and they're released to the world with notions about savings and investing, but they're also released to the world with something called a credit card. <laughs> and then they walk by a shopping mall and what wins? The thoughts that they have in their mind or the credit card in their wallet? Yeah. But but if we have a technology that works with you, now we have a better chance of uh, creating a behavioral change. So that's why I think that technology and behavioral economics really go hand in hand. And the, the technology nowadays <laughs> is affording us a wonderful uh, new ways to change behavior. Absolutely. So, um, so on that on that note, you mentioned it earlier. You're really focusing on um, on healthcare and financial decision making. Is that just because technology is there during those decisions? Is there we make more bad decisions in that space, or what's the driving force behind focusing on those types of companies, Dan? Yeah. So, so if you think about the 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 big classes of the way we misbehave i think it's time money health uh, the environment and hate kind of those are the big five um maybe you have another one that you you can add to it now <laughs> when when but if you think about those things uh, money from all of those things money is the most readily available for influence why? Because it's digital. Yeah. And it means that we can control the pipes. <clears throat> so, so for example, there's a company I help called Capital with a Q. <clears throat> and, okay. and, and what they uh, realized early on is that if you give people a credit card, uh, people spend more than their budget. You give them a prepaid debit card with, let's say, $2,000 a month, people are better. Uh, if you load the money once a week instead of once a month, people are even better. Huh. Why? Because if you load $2,000 at the beginning of the month, you say, well, my goodness, I'm wealthy. 
<laughs> and, and people spend way too much and they run out. If you do it for a week, it's a more manageable time frame. But, huh. but it doesn't end up there. Do you think it's better to load the money on Monday or on Friday? Monday? That's right. Because if you load it on Friday, the weekends happen. Right? Yeah. The weekend happens and then, and then people run out. <clears throat> so so money, money allows all of these things. Oh, here's another example. Imagine two people. Both get paid on the first of the month. One of them has the rent or mortgage comes out on the second. One of them has the rent or mortgage comes out on the 20th. What's, what's the difference between the two? The difference is that the second guy for 18 days thinks that they're rich. Yeah. Right? They look at their online banking balance and they say, oh, my goodness, I have money. And, and <laughs> so, so money, money is digital. And because it's digital or has digital representation, we can move it around and we can help people a lot, right? Very hard to do with the environment, right? Everything we do about the environment is almost all non-digital and almost all of it uh, is very, very tough. So, so, so I picked money as a starting point because I think, again, behavior economics is all about the environment matters. Let's control the environment and give people tools to behave better rather than changing human nature. Money is the most suitable for that. And I think time is very suitable for people who run their time on a calendar. Mm-hmm. Right? So we're doing some things on that. But, but health is moving into a more digital direction. And it's incredibly important. So I picked, I picked those two. Okay. Uh, by the way, from all of those, the, the one that is the biggest mystery for social scientists is hate. Right. That, oh, yeah. That's just one that we don't know. We don't really understand how to overcome. Uh, so, uh, be nicer. <laughs> so, so the, the problem with hate is that the only recipe we know to reduce it is to know somebody from the other side in an intimate way. Yeah. But hate precludes you from doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So, so the the thing that helps is the thing that also is very hard to do. But so anyway, but but again, the the, the principle is we want to give people better tools. Uh, in healthcare, there's opportunity for for tools like that. Um, yeah, and I can give you some examples if you want. Yeah, no, um, please give an example or two. I love examples. They help people wrap their head around something much easier. So I'll give an example from a from a startup that we we started called Shaper. S H A P A. And and that that startup the, the goal was to think about behavioral change and specifically about how to get people to be more healthy and how people to control their weight. And you know, we, we start looking at this from a psychological perspective, a behavioral perspective. So we say, okay, uh, uh, fighting for better health is something you have to do daily. You can't do five days a week. Like if you're tr- yeah. healthy five days a week, like eating well and binging for two, it doesn't work. So that's principle number one. Principle number two, you have to start before breakfast. You can't start after lunch, right? Uh, yeah. So it's, And, and the, the third principle was to say that um, you need something to remind you. You know, every time we hope that people remember themselves, there's going to, something is going to fail. We need something to to remind you, and you know a lot of the digital technologies all everything is on our phones but but we need some physical reminders 
And you can think about religion, by the way, that has all kinds of physical reminders, right? The, the cross, yeah. the, uh, the Jewish yarmulke, all kinds of things that basically um, are, are, are reminders. So we said, okay, reminder every day, first thing in the morning. We said, let's look at the bathroom scale. And, and you know, it's there in the morning. Somebody gives you two square feet of the best prime real estate in the house. Take it, right? It's a, it's a good thing. So, so then we started studying the scale. And we learned three things about the scale. We learned that it's a really good thing to step on the scale every morning. It doesn't help to stand out at night. Okay, yeah. And, and the reason is, is not because we weigh more in the evening. We do. But the reason is that if we step on it in the morning, this little ritual uh, reminds us to be healthy and we eat a little bit less for breakfast. Whereas if you stand okay, at night and sense. just go to bed, you forgot the whole thing. Yeah. Right. So, by the way, this is another – it's an interesting thing because you say if you could automate that and get people to not stand on a scale, but we could measure their weights underneath the bathroom mat or something like that, you wouldn't want it. You actually want a little ritual of stepping on the scale. So that was point number one. Point number two is that weight fluctuates a lot, up and down, up and down, up and down. People with kind of standard BMI, it could be two or three pounds a day. Uh, people who are morbidly obese, it could be eight pounds a day. Wow. Right? Now, what does this fluctuation does? In behavioral economics, we have a principle called loss aversion. And loss aversion in, in financial term uh, means that people hate losing money much more than they enjoy losing, uh, gaining money. <laughs> yeah, so, no, you're right. So if you had a day that you lost $100,000, you would feel unbelievably miserable. You had a day you made $100,000, you would feel happy. But the extent of the happiness will be about half of the emotional impact of the misery of losing. Now, think about somebody who doesn't change their weight on average. It just go up and down, up and down. But every up is miserable and every down is slightly happy. Yeah. Now, what you have is you have a sequence of high misery, slight happiness, high misery, slight happiness, high misery, slight happiness. Uh, because people react more negatively to the increases, People just end up not liking their scales, right? Because okay. it's 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 more bad news than than good news. Mm -hmm. By the way, this is in the in financial terms. This is also one of the reasons why people uh, sometimes overinvest in bonds, right? People hate the fluctuation in the market, yeah, and they say, "I don't want to see those fluctuations. Let me keep my money in cash or uh, or or in in bonds. I don't want to see the fluctuation, even though it's 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 a good strategy." And we then, always um, yeah. we always tell people Dan to um, <clears throat> to pay attention to the dollar sign on up days and pay attention to the percentage sign on down day, um, yeah. on negative <laughs> days, right? So yeah. never pay attention to how much you lost in dollar terms. Yeah, uh, but but yeah, but but you know the short term thinking, of course, in losses is very very painful, yeah. and that's why we we know that people um, <clears throat> often feel so terrible when their portfolio goes down and they end up selling and then. Not getting the up. No, you're right. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah. Back to the startup, the um, the healthcare so, startup. So, so okay. So so the up and down is creating this asymmetry, uh, what we call gain aversion, or you know, mm. it's loss aversion usually, but but with weight it's gain. Um, and then the third thing that happened is that the body takes some time to adjust. So imagine you're a diet for two days. You stand up on your scale and you say, "Looking forward to good results." Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, your, your weight goes up by half a pound. You know, the, the <laughs> you say, I've, 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 I ate nothing. I went for a walk. Uh, I ate salad. Like, what, what's, what's the result? The body takes eight days to two weeks to respond. But our okay. intuitive model is that we expect things to happen very fast. So what happened? People become frustrated, right? You go on the diet for four days. You stand up on the scale, nothing happened. Then you take two days off and you eat cheesecake and now something goes down. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's it's demotivating and so okay. So we said, okay, good to step on the scale, but the variance is demotivating and the delay is confusing people. Uh, we said let's create a scale with no display. Okay. Right? If people stand on the scale, let's say congratulations, you stood up on your scale. Good thing. And let's give them feedback in a way that is more compatible with how we process information. So we said, let's give them the feedback as an average over the last three weeks. Ah. But then, then we said, okay, maybe the average is not good enough. Um, and, and for two reasons. One is, so we, and we decided to do trends instead of averages. So imagine a trend. And imagine I have a system with either four points, much worse, slightly worse, slightly better, much better. Or I have five points, much worse, slightly worse, nothing bad happened, slightly better, much better. Is it a good idea to have the middle category, nothing much happened, or not? I would assume probably not. So, so you're wrong. <laughs> and, and here is the idea. By the way, most people assume so. But here's, the, here's what we find. Imagine a year, 52 weeks. And imagine somebody lost weight 12 weeks. And nothing happened in 40 weeks. Is that a good year or a bad year? You would have to assume that's a good year. It's an amazing year. Yeah. By the way, if you had the year when you just nothing bad happened, it's an amazing year, right? How old are you? <laughs> I'm 41. Okay. You'll, you'll get that very soon. <laughs> very soon you'll realize every year that nothing bad happened is an amazing year. But, but, but you know, a year where you had 12 weeks going down and 40 weeks going nothing happened is an amazing year. Uh, very hard to achieve that, by the way. Yeah. But but if we don't categorize that nothing bad happened as success, people would not feel this way. So uh-huh. so we we made it into a five point category, including a middle category, and celebrating nothing bad happened. Congratulations. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and and by the way, another reason we did the trend rather than the amounts uh, is is because. The, the trend allows us to hide more things that the average can't. Mm-hmm. Um, so so in, in terms of variance. So think, for example, about a woman who has a menstrual cycle. Right? Should, she, should we tell a woman on her menstrual cycle that she gained weight? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't try to – I tell – I try not to tell my wife that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I don't mean socially. <laughs> but – but from the perspective of trying to figure out what's going on with their health, it's not informative, right? Okay, yeah. so you have some water retention. It's just like it, it's not it's not helpful. Um, anyway, we tested this system, and uh, we we gave uh, some people a regular scale, and uh, this was in four call centers around the U.S. Relatively low income, relatively obese population. Tough to change the behavior. 
uh, we gave some of them uh, a regular scale and they gained 0.3% of their body weight every month for five months. The study lasted five months. Every month, slight increase, slight increase. The people who got our scale lost 0.6% every month for five months, right? Every month, slow, <coughs> slow increase. So that, that was great, a great result. And, and one of the main reasons was adherence was that people with our scale stood up on the scale six times or more per week for, for five months, right? People stopped being afraid of the scale. Yeah. And now, so, so there's a scale, but there's another point that I think is worthwhile thinking about, which is, you know, we're, we're, we're in an information age and we can bombard people with information. And, and what I did with the scale, what we did with the scale was to give people less information, right? And, and, and I think that kind of information has three functions. Accuracy. Here's the data. You do whatever you want with it. Um, understanding the relationship between cause and effect. You start eating cookies. Here's what happened. You stopped eating. You stopped drinking soft drinks. Here's what happened. Right? Relationship between cause and effect. And motivation. And, and those three don't always go together. And I think that, that for a startup... For any for any any entity that gives provides information, there's a we need to think about those three separately. Yeah, accuracy, motivation, and relationship within cause and effect. Let's let's just go back to our example of of uh, somebody that that is paying the rent or their mortgage either on the second of the month or the twentieth. Is it true that that's the right amount? What they have, absolutely. Is it helping them make better decisions? Not so much, right? Yeah. What? How would you start thinking about information differently if if you were saying, you know, forget about accuracy? It's about it's about quality of information. No, you're right. Um, uh, probably a, a thousand times differently, right? And I imagine, as you see it, it's probably around us every day that the the accuracy of the information is is off. That's right. Um, so, so I, I'm I'm uh, 52 years old. So I don't know. Have you have you had already your PSA tested? Um, not yet. No. So you should. You should. So you know what it is, right? I do. Okay. So this is this is a test that men should start doing when they're 40. Uh, so should we get maybe a public commitment for you for when you're going to go to the doctor? Uh, you know. I go. I I go every year and they haven't done it yet, Dan. So maybe we should have a conversation with my doctor. You want to dial him in real quick? Uh, when when are you going next? Um, I go in June every year. Okay, so next next June I want you to get the PSA tested and and report back. You know, public commitments, by the way, are a very good mechanism to get. I would imagine so. <laughs> so you can. I know you can edit this out, but hopefully you wouldn't. No, we'll leave it. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So so. Um, so the PSA is a very bad test. It's a test with huge variance. Uh, and one day, uh, one one year, my test went up by like 0.07, right? Like a tiny amount. Yeah. And my doctor said, it's going up. It's not going up. It's within the variance, right? But yeah. but when we see numbers, even doctors, even professionals, it's very hard not to overinterpret those numbers and say it's just variance. Um, uh, the same thing, by the way, is true for blood pressure, it's true for mm -hmm. uh, blood sugar levels, for lots of things that we need to we need to think better about what it is that we're trying to provide people with. 
No, um, yeah, the I've, I see my blood pressure. I go to the doctor <laughs> for allergy shots, and um, you see it you see it fluctuate all the time. And you can see it in the stock prices too, right? To go back to stay within the financial, uh-huh. yep. somebody sees you know stock price jump by one percent, they say, "Oh gosh, I've missed the boat." And it's like, "Well, wait a second, that's within the variance. Wait a week, and you'll see it come back down, or yep. I mean, maybe you won't, but whatever." Yeah. Um, By the way, the same thing is true for the for stock market. So, you know, when you think about making decisions in the stock market. You should probably never open your portfolio, look at the data, and then decide what to do. Like, you know, all of, all of the data is, is backward. It's about history. Yeah. It will just get your emotion up or down for some, for some reason. But financial decision all about moving forward. Is this a move good forward up or forward or not? Um, you should read about different companies, how Amazon is doing, and decide to go with it or not. But it shouldn't be about let me get annoyed or happy and then make decisions. Yeah, no, exactly right. So a horrible place to make decisions is from a happier and annoyed place. <laughs> yeah. So how do how do companies um, how do companies get into the startup lab? Is it an application process? Is it and then and then further, Dan? How do you and how does the team decide, you know, let's assume a thousand people want to join it because I would imagine at least a thousand do because the work you do is really interesting. How do you how do you manage that down to a level, um, you know, of five, 10, 15 companies that, you know, you think you can actually support and help? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so we do have a lot of applications and uh, there's another uh, another reason is because we're at a part of a university system, uh, we can also uh, give visas to people from outside of the U.S. Uh-huh. Right? Because they come as uh, everybody here is coming under university uh, umbrella. The university can do things that uh, are a little tougher for for regular incubator. Um, but but what we look at is we look at things that would be compatible with what we're doing, right? So a a regular incubator is there to serve the startups. Uh, We are here to serve our research mission and the startups. So, you know, if somebody has a great idea in a domain that our research staff is not working on, uh, I probably wouldn't take it. Uh, for, for both reasons. One is that it's it's not good for us, but it's also not good for the startups because if the startup comes here and they want to work on how to get people to, to take their medication on time, we have a lot of experience with that, right? We know a lot. Um, we're already doing experiments on this topic. We're working with, with companies on that. So so that's the ideal ideal thing that we get to gain from that on the research side and we get to gain; they get to gain from this, from the uh, broader expertise. So we look for these win-win um, situations. Okay. And then we also, um, because we're the the biggest constraint we have is people uh, size. Uh, we try to get teams that are early and are small teams because we we try to get the whole team to come here. Okay. So. Two, three, four, five people yeah. rather than 20, 30. And, um, okay, makes sense. 
Um, so you've been running this for a couple of years and, you know, if you, if you Google, um, if you Google you, which I don't know if you've done, but I've done a couple of times, you see, you know, you've been involved with some startups in the past as a co-founder. Um, you have invested in some startups, um, just from a capital allocation perspective. Um, and you pay attention to irrational behavior because it's what you do. Um, what have you learned about the irrationality of both illiquid investors? So rather than buying Amazon, right, which is, I would assume, different than buying shares in a startup company. Um, so what have you learned about both the irrationality of, an, of, of illiquid investors and of founders themselves, right? I mean, what are the, um, what are the negative sides of both people? Yeah. So, 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 First of all, I think that we we think about those things as investments, uh, but but it's a mistake to think of them as just an investment. Okay. Um, let's think about the house. Uh, is the house an investment? Yes. Uh, but would you be happy to live in a house that you love and lose money every year? Hopefully, yes. Um, I remember when my wife and I moved to Durham, there was a house we really liked, and she said it was overpriced. And I said, look, every year we spend X amount on vacation. It's money that we spend on increasing our quality of life. Why can't we spend X on a house every year and lose that money but invest in the quality of our of our house, <laughs> of, our, of yeah, our quality of life? and. And eventually we did that. Um, the house didn't lose value, but 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 we <laughs> we we did that. Uh, and and I think that um, for me, a lot of times startups are like that, right? So so I look at it as an investment. Do I think it will have an upside? Uh, is it is it a reasonable thing to do? But I have to admit that I look at startups where I also say. I'm going to learn something completely new and exciting. Um, so, for example, I invested a little bit in a company that had was doing something in uh, a cryptocurrency. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and it has been an incredible ride. I've learned so much uh, oh, bad, yeah. uh, from, from that. So, so I think there are some investments that you're doing as a – you know, you wouldn't spend your whole capital on that. But, you know, investing a little bit more in Amazon would not get me to understand Amazon better. But, no, you're but, right. But investing in a company that does medical devices <laughs> would get me to understand more about about health. So I think that's one, that's one thing. Um, and then... And then personally, I you asked me about like what what I think are some of the issues. The issues is overconfidence. Yeah, um, and it's true for the founder and it's true for the investors. And and here's a here's the thing about overconfidence. So let's think about something very very straightforward like restaurants. Should people open a restaurant? If somebody came to you as a financial advisor and say, "I always dreamed about having a restaurant. Should I open a restaurant?" Most likely not. <laughs> but the, the, the odds are very clear, right? Probability of success yeah. is very low. Probability of failure is very high. 
it's an expensive adventure. Um, very hard to look at the data and say, don't do it. That's say, do it, right? It's, yeah. You should say, don't do it to everybody. Uh, but let me ask you the different question. As a, a member of society, how much would you love to live in a city where there's no restaurants? <laughs> so, so, you know, the yeah. individual... The individual investors and the individual founders are often irrational, uh, but society as a whole needs them. Yeah, right. So, so it's an irrationality on the individual level. It's it's very very good for society. I don't want to say rational, but it's very very good for society. So, nobody should be open restaurants. Society needs new restaurants. Uh, and yeah. and uh, uh, nobody should probably start a startup. Society needs uh, needs needs startup. So so that's uh, I think kind of important to figure out. If my guess is that purely investing in startups as a financial returns, you need a certain level of detachment for reality and overconfidence. Yeah. And if you just look at it as a financial thing. You should probably stay away. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, I told you earlier, I've been a member of the Charlotte Angel Fund for the last five years now. And, um, you know, I think one of the most beneficial aspects of being a member of the fund is going to the monthly meetings and learning about, A, what crazy people are actually trying to do, um, but also listening to how other people um, attack and support the founders and what they're trying to do and learn from the way different people um, who are built different than I am are thinking through issues, right? So it's an intellectual stimulation as much as it is a financial hopeful stimulation over time as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but but if, if somebody, you know, if somebody said statistically, let's let's put a fund out there that would invest equally in all startups – and, you know, in the same way that, that I don't know what's your belief about investing in the stock market, but I uh, I mostly believe in, you know, market portfolios rather than stock picking. I don't think there are many people who can pick stocks or time the market. Uh, I think also, you know, picking up startups is very, very tough. And yeah. on average, I think it's not a good return financially. Uh, emotionally, educationally, amazing return. Yeah. So, so stick with that. And I told you earlier that one of my frustrations with Charlotte years ago was the fact that there weren't that many people investing in startups. Um, how do you grow the pool of irrational investors in startups, Dan? Um, I, 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 so, you know, I think it's about the fact that uh, exactly what you said, that, that it needs to be more than a financial return. Right, it needs to be um, an opportunity to learn and grow. Uh, it needs to be an opportunity to get to get new insights that are uh, hard to get in a, in a different way. Right, and yeah. and all of us are are busy and we do our work, and I think all of us would admit that the rate in which we learn new things is not the rate that we want to learn new things. Because at work, you know, there's just work and there's so much to, to do and finish. And we don't get a, a chance to do a new course or start something new. And 
and I think I think that startups allow for this new possibility of learning something new, interacting with new people. So, so if somebody said, "Let me just put money, and this uh, uh, this pot of money will just go to random startups in the Charlotte area," I would say, "Don't do it." But if I say, "If you can meet the founders, talk, get some updates, learn what they're doing, get to think about this, maybe help them, learn about their process." Now, now it's a worthwhile investment. Yeah. So, um, kind of stay on that to- topic, and you've um, you've talked about it in your TED talks as well as I think your um, your first book, um, which um, in the TED talk it's a slide and it's got two tables, and I think it's um, I think it's in the book too. It's an image of the two tables. One is wide and seemingly short, and the other is narrow and seemingly long. Um, the reality, the situation, as you point out, is the two tables end up being the same length. Um, yeah, even knowing that, we still think the narrow one is longer and it's not actually. So one of the conclusions you bring is um, something we should be good at, like vision, because we use our eyes all the time, um, is an area where we also make mistakes. Um, and if we make easy mistakes there, then it's quite possible and likely that we end up making easy mistakes elsewhere too, Right. Um, and as I was watching that video last week or the week before, kind of trying to get ready for this um, podcast interview with you, I kept thinking about all the startup founders that I meet and do podcast interviews and different things. And they always tell me that that you know the, that they want to fail fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about it, and I was like, I wonder if failing fast is impactful on their success, or is it just another illusion that failing is helping them? helping them out is is failing helpful for startups dan do, do they um no what's so, your view on that yeah so i don't think they mean failing i don't think they mean failing i think they mean <laughs> that they want to know if their assumptions are wrong fast uh, but i also think that they just say it and they don't really mean it and yeah. i don't know who you're really talking to so it's it's a generalization but you know there's something about the startup bravado go out early and iterate and fail fast. <clears throat> I see a lot of go out early and don't iterate. <laughs> I see a lot of, I don't want to see the data if it doesn't support my hypothesis. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that we do with the startups that come here or the companies I talk to is I say, let's just test your assumptions. And, and I don't think you need to really fail. But I think what they mean is they really need to test that they are on good foundations. And, and from that perspective, I think they're right. The, the term is not, shouldn't be failing fast. The term is I want to test my assumptions early. Because if you think about a startup like a pyramid, you have some basic assumption. You build on it, you build on it, you build on that. If it's too late to find out that your early assumptions are, are correct – it's too late, yeah. Right. So, so just to take one simple one is, this is something sufficiently valuable that people would pay for it. Let's say your business model is is one in which people would have to pay for something at some point. Um, if if you don't test that early, and you say, well, let me give it for free for the first two years, and then we'll figure out if people are willing to pay for it, that that might be something that you've wanted to test early on or um i mean i can that goes yeah i can tell you that goes real 
I was going to say that goes to what you talk about with the startup lab a lot, right? Which is, um, and I think it's in the video or maybe it's in a write-up or something like that, where you say you want to help entrepreneurs learn more about the social science aspect of it, right? I mean, that goes back to the failing fast isn't necessarily the right term. Is they want to learn how to test their hypothesis quickly um, and and learn from there and what's the reality that's driving decisions rather than what they might think is driving decisions. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you one story about this. <clears throat> um, it's not a startup. It's, it's a project for, for um, uh, the Israeli government. Uh, but, but the Israeli government uh, wanted to digitize uh, classes on what is called computer science light. Right, so they had this idea that you go to people in high school and you give them a six weeks computer science light classes, and more kids will study computer science, and particularly more girls would study computer science. But but the project was take this class and digitize it so that people can we can distribute it broadly and cheaply. So uh, we said, okay, before we do this, let's check if this class even increases kids' desire to study computer science. And by the yeah. way, this class, this type of class is given by Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Wix, and so many companies are doing that, right? Um, so we tested it. And what do you think happened? It turns out it doesn't help. <laughs> it, it doesn't help boys, and it makes girls less likely to study computer science. Oh, wow. Less likely. So, you know, you get these results. It's very, very strange. So we tested it again. Same result. Okay, so now we started a detective process, like what's going on? And what we found is that at the end of these six weeks, the girls are perfectly, they think they're perfectly capable of doing it. There's no gap of ability. But they do think it's incredibly boring. Right, because the first six weeks of computer science, you learn to move a turtle on the screen. Yeah. And they say, what kind of job is this? Who wants to do this for a living? The boys don't care, right? They say, oh, I get to move a turtle on the screen. That's exciting. But the yeah. girls <laughs> the girls at that age want something that is more meaningful. So, so what we did was we did something very different. We said, what if we created a, a set of videos of young kids, but particularly young women, who are doing computer science and something, computer science and design, computer science and education, computer science and health. And we get the kids to go through these videos to see what can be done. And now we increase dramatically the number of girls who are going to study computer science. But if you think about this as an example, it's a project. Actually, there's lots of companies who are doing this, all with good intentions. Mm -hmm. But their model is to say the barrier is ability, the barrier is familiarity. If we only cover that barrier, we will change behavior. But but nobody has tested it, right? And I've yeah. talked to the people at Google and Wix and Microsoft and so on. No, They're so sure that what they're doing is good. They keep doing it. They keep on doing it. Uh, or in the area of financial decision-making. You know, the, uh, every year we, we spend between seven and eight hundred million dollars on what's called financial literacy. Yeah. And it sounds very reasonable, right? Let's teach people about money. Uh, but there were a couple of studies that, that looked at that. 
And uh, what they said was, they said, yes, you know, people learn these things. And yes, they remember some of it. But do they behave differently? And, and the two papers are, have different conclusions. One of them is estimated the improvement is 0.1%. Oh, wow. So you imagine, right? You spend seven to $800 million a year, and the improvement is 0.1%. That's it. The, the other paper, by the way, had a very different estimate. They, they thought it was twice as much. It was 02 <laughs> <laughs> But in, in any case, very, very close to zero. But... But, you know, people who are spending all this amount of money have a theory that says the bound, the barrier for good behavior is that people just don't know. Let's teach people. They'll learn. They'll know. They'll do a better behavior. Turns out, I'm not saying it with happiness. I wish it was so simple, right? Because then life would be great, but it's not. Yeah. So so we need to... And, and I think that's what startup means. They mean that they, or what they should mean is they need, they say, we need to test and verify our assumptions very early on so we don't end up spending years on, on these wasteful foundations. Like imagine we digitized the class first yeah. and created all of these assets and did a great job on a new, and then we tested if it's working. Yeah. <laughs> That you know, two years later we would we would find out that it's not working and everything was a waste. Well, somebody um, somebody else figured it out before you did, and they started the company with the new hypothesis, and you're too far behind to pivot, right? That's right. Yeah. So, um, which kind of speaking of um, speaking of you you um, you test a hypothesis and you're too late to pivot because somebody else is already there. Um, startups win because of that, right? I mean, you think of Yahoo, you think of Blockbuster, you think of all of these companies, um, really smart CEOs, really smart consultants. Um, why, um, why do big companies like that not see what startups see and, or ignore it? Or what's, is there, you know, what's the, (laughs) what's the rationality of that? And it's irrational in and of itself, I would assume, but, um, so, so I think it's a, a multiple things. Uh, one is that they really don't see it, yeah. right? So, so what happened is when you join a company uh, and you stay there for a while, uh, you get a set of acronyms, and and I'm I'm, I'm saying acronyms as a metaphor for a lot of things, yeah. but but you get some a lens from which to view life, uh-huh. right? And and that that lens. Uh, let you focus on some things and not on others. And it's very, very hard to see uh, other things coming at you, right? So if uh, somebody else is coming up with a cheap price, you can see that. But yeah. but if somebody up coming with a different value proposition, <clears throat> your own lens has a hard time uh, seeing that that's, that's coming. So I think that's one. And, and the other thing is that uh, big companies – you know, people people don't have the same luxury of time to think about changes, right? So, um, t- take an extreme example. Uh, take take a company like Google, and imagine that they want to change the chicken in the cafeteria to be, I don't know what, ostrich. 
<laughs> okay. Sounds good. Uh, I think Australia is healthy. But okay. let's say they wanted to change it. How many committees will have to be formed? Oh, gosh. And how many lawyers will have to be consult? And they'll have to make sure where they source the, the meat from and to make sure that it's environmentally and, and that people would not get upset and, and so on. If you and I wanted as individual to try ostrich, it's it's a it it has no thing. So so what happened is that companies, because of bureaucracy, and because of legal statutes, and you know if you think about what companies do, is they streamline processes. And there's a lot of good things about streaming processes, mm-hmm. and there's lots of bad things. And the bad thing is doing anything. Not the same is very different. They're very difficult. Yeah. Right. So if you have a if you have a payroll that you have honed in for ten years, you know, and the system talks to this and, and you try to change one thing, very tough. If you yeah. write if you write the people who work for you check by hands. You can change whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. So so uh so, so I think you know, it, it's it's good and bad. Companies are supposed to they're supposed to become stagnant because at that point of the development, uh, they are supposed to optimize for efficiency, not for creativity. Yeah. Right. So um, you want to get a creative process, move up, stabilize it, and then you want to say, okay, now let's let's save, let's let's make it more efficient. And making yeah. it more efficient means we, we automate it, we stabilize it, we make it difficult to make mistakes, um, but it also means we make deviations tougher. So, so I, I, I think it's just a life cycle, you know, in the same way that, you know, uh, at 50, I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> not, not learning as fast as I did before uh, and so on. It's just, it, there's, a, there's a life cycle point and I'm, I'm perfectly happy with companies, you know, going through this life cycle and then going down and something else comes. I don't think it's a bad idea. Yeah. It's funny. I wrote down a question as you're talking about um, efficiencies and everything else. And um, and you kind of answered it um, without really knowing what I was asking. And uh, the question was a simple, how do companies guard against it? Right. Um, and, um I mean, essentially, what you've said is you don't. Um, you go, you you optimize for profitability, which means streamlining and processes and everything else. And um, eventually, that optimization for prof- profitability um, might end up le- uh, leading to your own demise. Yeah. Um, and then I think it's fine for companies, like you know, if you say, should a company try to innovate in-house or buy startups? I'm not sure what's the what's the right answer, but I think it might be that buying from the outside is better. It, it's possible. Yeah. Uh, it's possible because the, um, the the mission statement is so different, right? Um, now you could say the vision, of course. You know, there, there are some some things like drug companies. You need so much money to innovate, or mm-hmm. um, aerospace, right? There's no if it's not Boeing and Lockheed Martin or you know, Airbus, who else could, could do it? So there's some industries that you need the big people to innovate. But if you think about in a financial world, right, and you say, is Wells Fargo about innovation? Tough, tough, right? Like yeah. if you, 
uh, imagine that you were at Wells Fargo and you wanted to innovate. Like the computer science, uh, the computer systems are so ancient that if you wanted to do something that talks, my understanding in Wells Fargo, and I might be wrong, is that if you move from California to New York, you have to close your bank and close your bank account and open a new one because they, they, their own computer systems don't talk to each other, right? It's just yeah. legacy, legacy systems. So, so you know, if you if you want to innovate within that system, it's just too much, too difficult. It's been it's been you know uh, honed for for something very very specific. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So, um, so then the startup's role is the startup's role is to is to be the future mm-hmm. um and the you know the established company's role is to serve i guess the present um what's um but you, right, you look out this the- is why this is why i love experiments so much because i think experiments are also about envisioning the future yeah. right so but one big distinction between data analysis or big data analysis and experiments is that in a big data exercise, you analyze what we have already. In an experiment, what you do is you envision a new future. No bad. You say, point. what if this happened? And then you test it out and say, oh, that's a better world. Let's build it now. Yeah. So is um, so in that world, then, um, <clears throat> startup failure is a good thing because they've envisioned a future that the public doesn't end up grabbing. Is that right, too? Well, it's not a good thing. It's it's uh, <clears throat> it's necessary, right? I wish I wish there was not so much waste in the startup world. Um, you know, I think I think a lot of them could have been more informed from the beginning. Some 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 things are gambles, right? Like some things you say, okay, this is really interesting. <clears throat> Let me see if this this will work out. And there's no way to to find out, and you need to try it out. But there's some mistakes that people make that are. Uh, are avoidable. So I, I wish I wish that people would focus the um, the risk on the things that have real risk rather than the things that are just amateurish mistakes. That if they went and read you know ten papers in the library, they would have found out that this was a mistake. So um, and I want to be um, you know uh, aware of your time. Um, I told you one o'clock and we're kind of bumping up against that. So in, in kind of three minutes, recognizing that not a lot of people are going to look, go to the library and read the 10 papers. <laughs> what are ways that founders and or potential investors can look at a concept or an idea and say, that's just not going to work. Um, are there, are there built in tricks and systems that we can implement on our own behalf? Um, to, I guess, process and streamline things in a world that probably shouldn't be processed and streamlined yet? Or, yeah. Um, so, so sadly, my answer here is no. I haven't found that method yet. So <clears throat> here, is, here is what happens. Um, we, we trust a lot of our, our intuition. Yeah. Right? Uh, but, but social science has basically shown that intuition doesn't work. Right? So intuition can work in things that we have a lot of experience with, like if you played, you know, 100,000 hours of chess, you will get a good intuition. You'll see a board and you'll get a sense of it. But with startups, we don't have that much experience and we're envisioning a future which we don't, we never seen before. So how could we even have an intuition about that? And and there's really no shortcuts here. Uh, there's no shortcuts. It's, it's, um, there are basically two ways to learn. One is to do and see if you're successful in failure. 
And the other one is to go to the library and see if other people have tried something like this before or an element of this and, and has it failed or succeeded and what caused it to yeah. succeed and fail. So I, I know you're right that people don't go to the library, um, but but it's so much cheaper to go to the library than to 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 try to what, – what startups often do is they assume that nobody has ever looked at this question before. They're the first one. Yeah. Uh, but but you know a day in the library could save you a lot of work so <laughs> and and not just look for supporting evidence let me look for things that have would validate look for things that undermine your your approach so i i wish there was a a shortcut but sadly the shortcut here is trusting your intuition and that's often not a good shortcut yeah well i mean not to draw the uh, us out too much longer but um Sometimes we learn by failing too, right? So the fact that we didn't go to the library is an expensive mistake, <laughs> but it's a mistake that we might not have learned inside the library at the same time. That's that's right. I just don't think you really need that mistake. Like <laughs> uh, that's some that's some mistake. Like you know, texting and driving. Yeah, you can learn from mistakes. Yeah, let's uh, let's, but trust me, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. So no, you're right. As somebody that had my own startup that failed, I wish I would have saved that money instead, but yeah. um, and gone to the library. Um, so no, this is uh, this has been fantastic. So um, I've enjoyed uh, enjoyed you know talking to you, talking about startups and um, technology and finance and healthcare and everything else. And it's really cool what you're doing up in Durham. Um, and we'll direct people to the website um, and continue to promote it down here in Charlotte. But thanks so much for doing everything that you do out there, Dan. Thank you, and it was lovely to talk to you and looking forward to next time. All right, thanks so much. Bye. William Bissett is an investment advisor representative with Seacrest Blakey & Associates, a registered investment advisor. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Seacrest Blakey & Associates. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Seacrest Blakey & Associates does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under the Securities Act and a qualified purchaser as defined in Section 2A, Paragraph 51, line A under the Company Act or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.